From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we speak with retired judge Nancy Gertner and CNN legal analyst Danny Savalas about the recent controversial trial of Michelle Carter. And following that discussion, Nigel Austin joins us to speak about the upcoming National Black Theater Festival here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Involuntary manslaughter is traditionally understood, for example, as killing someone while driving drunk. The defendant didn't mean to take someone's life, but their reckless and negligent actions directly resulted in someone's death. Based on the correspondence via text, Michelle Carter did encourage Conrad Roy to kill himself. However, were her actions culpable in such a way so that but for her contributions, Roy would still be alive? Is it possible to have culpability if one is not present? Can you be guilty of involuntary manslaughter with mere words alone? Last week, a Massachusetts judge said not only was it possible, that's exactly what Michelle Carter was guilty of as she awaits sentencing, which could be up to 20 years convicted of involuntary manslaughter in the death of Conrad Roy. The ruling has set the legal community abuzz with questions. What does this mean? Does this open the door to new legal terrain? Joining me for the first portion of this discussion is Judge Nancy Gertner. Judge Gertner, now retired, is a senior lecturer at Harvard Law School. Judge Nancy Gertner, welcome to the Public Morality. Good to be here. Uh, if you would, could you give us a, a brief syn- uh, synopsis of the background of this case and as well as the verdict? Uh, Michelle Carter is a uh, 17-year-old girl who um, supposedly had a relationship uh, uh, with an 18-year-old, with Conrad Roy. Uh, and Roy had been someone who had tried to commit suicide on numbers of occasions, um, uh, was obviously very depressed. It appears most of their relationship was through their text messages. Um, uh, I, I'm not clear how much they actually saw one another, uh, but those messages were mostly about suicide. There was really a, um, you know, they were pretty striking messages talking about depression, et cetera. Uh, the, uh, finally, the final episode was one in which Roy uh, hooked up a device to his truck that would uh, fill the cabin of the truck with carbon monoxide. Uh, He was talking to Michelle Carter all the while that he was doing so. The critical moment for the judge, back off again, so he was uh, uh, talking to her uh, while he was doing it. Uh, It was alleged that that she then, at one point he changed his mind, got out of the car, and she encouraged him to get back into the truck and kill himself. Um, Carter was indicted for involuntary manslaughter, and indicted for involuntary manslaughter because Massachusetts has no statute dealing with assisting a suicide. Uh, involuntary manslaughter, you know, is a 200-year-old statute that has its roots in English common law. Um, uh, the 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 defendant initially challenged the indictment, claiming that words are not enough. Carter was not physically present at the scene, nor did she provide him with the tools to commit suicide, which other cases had involved. And so there was a motion to dismiss that went up to the Supreme Judicial Court, saying you can't have a prosecution like this based on words alone. The court found that you could, 
that under the circumstances of this case, uh, the facts could show there was probable cause to believe that either she acted with recklessness causing his death or failed to act in the waning hours before the, in the waning minutes rather, before the suicide causing his death. And the prosecution then went forward, and last week uh, uh, Carter was convicted of involuntary manslaughter and is subject to being sentenced in August. She could receive a sentence of anywhere from probation to 20 years. Now, when I looked at the uh, Massachusetts statute, I mean, they, they have a uh, manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter basically carry the same sentence. Is that is that correct? That's right. That's right. You know, now, because we're talking about um, someone's words uh, as, as causing uh, causing the suicide in this case, um, I'm, I'm assuming obviously this, this will be appealed, but uh, is there, in your view, uh, a possible First Amendment issue here, or does Carter's words um, uh, akin to uh, Oliver Holmes' uh, fire in a theater? Right. I don't think that there's a First Amendment issue. I know that that's what the lawyers have argued. Uh, words are often the instrumentality of crime under the as a general matter right if i threaten uh you know if you if you're not nice to me on this interview i'm going to go and punch your face out that threat those words are in fact actionable they're actionable as an assault as a as an assault but and, you know but what's different about this case is that although my words may uh, it may threaten you. In this case, I'm being held responsible for the the final act. In other words, it's one thing to criminalize the words themselves that were threatening or um, uh, in some way, but this is now holding her responsible for the acts that those words allegedly caused. So the critical issue is not the protection for the words, it's the causation. We don't usually believe that words are responsible for deeds, and particularly not suicide, and particularly not in a situation where someone tried to commit suicide before. We assume that people, you know, are act as of their own free will. So the, the critical issue here is not the words, but the relationship of the words to the acts. Um, as we're talking about this this, this verdict, um, you know, most of us and uh, who are who are not um, attorneys. Um, We'll have a, an emotional reaction to it. We, we'll get our information from cable news shows, and, and that'll determine what the verdict ought to be. Right. But, but from your perspective, um, this potentially uh, takes us down some uncharted legal waters, does it not? There's no question that this is uh, un, that this is an extension of involuntary manslaughter. There's no question about it. So let me sort of just look at the building blocks of this. One case that the court cited was the case of fairly celebrated case of two homeless people who started a fa- accidentally started a fire in a warehouse, never called the cops, just fled. Two um, firemen were killed in the fire, and they were charged with involuntary uh, manslaughter. But the difference between that case and this is that they created the hazard. They started the fire and then failed to um, to, to, to tell anybody that it was going on or failed to put it out. The judge, the Supreme Judicial Court and the judge in this case said, well, this is the same thing. She created the hazard um, and then failed to intervene, failed to call the cops, failed to call Roy's parents. That's an interesting question as to whether she created the hazard under this situation or whether or not he was hell-bent on committing suicide regardless of what she did. Um, so it's an extension to say starting a fire and not putting it out is the same thing as encouraging someone who um, had been trying to commit suicide before to continue with the deed. It's an extension. Um, in addition, it's an extension in another respect. The public doesn't realize that Massachusetts has no what's called Good Samaritan Laws which means if you're watch if you see a, an armed robbery across the street you actually have absolutely no inter- no obligation to stop it nor do you have any obligation to call the police so we there and there are other states that have statutes that uh, obligate people to do that so what's interesting here is in one sense 
uh, even uh, what the judge is saying is that she had an he, she had an obligation to intervene, which is um, which is an extension under the law, which is really an extension. Um, the uh, so the, the the we've never seen a case like this. Now that doesn't mean that you can't be prosecuted for it, but using the criminal law and in particular law laws of manslaughter, which expose people to such an extraordinary punishment for a new situation is where the problem is. Mm-hmm. That's the issue. Yeah, what, what, I'm sorry, go ahead, finish, I'm sorry. I mean, it, there, there's no question that one can condemn this young woman's words as a moral matter. There's no question that this kind of case should start the legislature thinking afresh about criminalizing assisted suicide. What are the circumstances under which we would regard that as an appropriate crime? But what is troubling here is to take a statute that really dealt with very different circumstances and apply it to this situation where, uh, you know, the, the, the young woman is in jeopardy of 20 years in prison. Well, the last portion of your answer, uh, you, you make it sound very much uh, like this could be a um, prototype for, uh, dare I say, legislating from the bench. Um, well, I mean, it's not really legislating from the bench because ordinarily this would have been a jury trial. So, I mean, it's it's, it's an analogous situation. But, it's, but the, what what the what the Supreme Judicial Court is say what said initially approving these charges going forward was saying that um, words could, in some circumstances, lead to encourage someone else to act. And the court was very careful to say that it was not suggesting that giving advice to a mature adult would necessarily um, be a problem. It was not saying that um, a doctor giving advice would necessarily be a problem. Um, so it was trying to restrict the implications of what it was doing. The problem is that um, when you, when the statute is just involuntary manslaughter and not the more specific assisting suicide, it opens the door to lots of other interpretations. That's the problem. When you when the when you 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 know they were saying we only meant this set of facts. We don't mean all of these other sets of facts. But the statute is involuntary manslaughter and doesn't say much more than, than that. It opens the door to other kinds of prosecutions. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Judge Nancy Gerdner of Harvard Law School. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me, again, as, as a layperson here, um, that we're, we're just, we are talking about minors. And so I guess the, one of the questions I had was how, how do you take – free will completely away from person A and put it all on person B who's not there. Well, that's the point here. You see, you start off with the assumption um, that when someone commits suicide, that's an act, they're, they're, that's an exercise of free will. In fact, that's a, arguably the sort of penultimate example of free will. You're, you, you know, you want to be in control of your own life. You want to be in control of the taking of your own life. Um, the, the, as I said, most of the usual situations are where someone is present. Uh, there's a famous case of a husband who essentially helped the wife figure out how to use the gun um, with which she killed herself. Or the, there are Russian roulette cases, you know, where kids are sitting around a room with a gun um, and everybody takes the risk that the gun is loaded at, on their round and everyone at the table is held responsible. That's the classic involuntary manslaughter situation. You are present. You've done something physically. What's unique about this case is not present and only words. So the court says that that in this situation it was enough because of the nature of her words and the nature of their relationship and the timing of her words. And that's an extension of involuntary manslaughter. There's no question about that. One of the things that struck me also about this case, um, and and I don't even have the the, the expertise to really take an opinion, but I I did struggle with it, uh, probably while we're having you on today to help help our listeners understand this case. But the the, uh, prosecution put a lot of weight, as I understand it, on the phone call. 
Now, there's no recording of the phone call. Their knowledge of the phone call was through a text that uh, Ms. Carter made uh, three months after the suicide occurred. I mean, does that open? Does that in and of itself open new ground legally? Is that is, is that already uh, a standard? Well, it doesn't open any new ground it, it, as a as a matter of evidence, right? So, so, so if you said something to me today, characterizing um, words that you said three months ago, a jury or in this case the judge could say, well, do I believe that your account of your words is true? Do I believe that it's true? Is that what you said? Um, and that, that, so that, that doesn't open any new ground. We do that all the time. People confess months later. People characterize what they did at the time of the crime. That doesn't open new ground. But it does dramatize the problems with the use of involuntary manslaughter in this situation because the judge focused almost exclusively on what happened in the minutes before Mr. Roy committed suicide and that characterization of Michelle Carter's call. So that becomes a dangerous read, you know, sort of a thin read to hang a consequence that is this substantial. Mm-hmm. In other words, it, drama, there's nothing, it doesn't open up new ground except to the extent that this whole prosecution opens up new ground. Mm-hmm. That, that use of the evidence in that particular way doesn't open up any new ground. Now I'm going to ask you to put on your prognosticator hat for just a moment. And we, uh-huh. we will not hold you to this, by the way. Okay. Uh-huh. But what does this ruling um, say to, uh, say, Facebook, Twitter, other social uh, media venues? Is, is this something they need to be uh, aware of? Well, I think, yes. I mean, I think um, – uh, the only other prosecution, by the way, which is a like prosecution, was where um, uh, someone online uh, uh, started uh, reaching out to, to women who were suicidal in various ways, and then um, and then they committed suicide. Tried to do this on uh, on Facebook. Uh, the name of the case was uh, uh, Melcher Dinkle where essentially the guy tried to the uh, provided a victim with information about how to hang herself or pleadedly tried to uh, uh, dissuade the victim from her particular plan. So this is someone who is actually online dealing with people as to whom he has no relationship and just doing it for, um, uh, you know, doing it for the hell of it. Um, so that was one prosecution, and um, I think that the prosecution was, he, that was a situation where there was an assisting suicide statute, a specific assisting suicide statute. But your more general question about what about the kids who are bullying another kid online and then the second kid commits suicide? Um, one could say that Michelle Carter, Michelle Carter's case isn't a precedent because there isn't a close relationship, there isn't the issue of timing as there was in... Um, in Carter, one could say that, but that the door is opened is the problem. In other words, this case may be, Carter may be an extreme example, but you've you've opened the door to a kind of case, um, to prosecutions which could be problematic. One kid bullying another, the second kid commits suicide, that could be. Um, Or or a doctor um, uh, encouraging someone to commit suicide not encouraging, advising someone as to how to commit suicide. Um, uh, the Supreme Judicial Court expressly said they're not talking about that kind of situation, but they that wouldn't keep a prosecutor from bringing such a prosecution. Hmm. That's, I mean, I think the broad point here is that assisted suicide is an incredibly complex area, and you don't deal with the problem and public's concerns through a very general statute. If you want to regulate it, you regulate it directly. You call it assisting suicide. And I might add that in the states that have assisting suicide, I don't believe, I'm not completely sure about this, but I don't believe that the penalties are the same penalties as for manslaughter. Uh, In other words, you criminalize the act. You say it's a bad act, but you don't necessarily hold the person responsible for 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 the manslaughter that results. 
Um, so, I mean, the general point here is that this may be this is a horrible situation. There's no question about it, no question that we can, it's, we should condemn the acts. The question is wait, well, the way to condemn it is through this general statute or through uh, a provision that would deal with assisting suicide. Um, I, I have a feeling that we've not heard the last of this case, and we might have to have you back to uh, explain it to us one more time. Uh, Judge Nancy Gerdner, Harvard Law School, thank you so much for being on the public rally. We, we've appreciated your input. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Take care. As we continue our discussion about the Michelle Carter trial, I am now joined by CNN legal analyst Danny Savalos. Danny Savalos, welcome to the public morality. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, let's just dive right in. We just had um, Judge uh, Nancy Gertner uh, on prior to you, and so we'll just dive right into to the case itself. Did the verdict surprise you? It did surprise me. Uh, it surprised me because I think it's a statement by our courts uh, that they're willing to extend liability to a uh, criminal liability uh, to suicide. And to take a step back, I was surprised, but then I'm going to hedge it a little bit and say I wasn't surprised because the way the statute that she was charged under is written is sort of a it's a negligent statute and it's very broadly drafted. So as long as the court could find that she committed some act that she reasonably and I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing reasonably knew had a likelihood of causing death then the court could find her guilty. I thought the defense did a brilliant strategic move uh, selecting a bench trial, a judge-only trial, instead of a jury trial, uh, because when emotions run high and you have a particularly distasteful defendant, uh, that's the time to maybe not go with a jury and maybe go with a bench trial, a judge trial, because a judge will put emotions aside and look at the legal issues. And the legal issues certainly favored the defendant in this case, uh, because... Uh, as a general rule, historically, we have not imposed criminal liability uh, on people, on, on third parties, for a victim's suicide, because suicide has traditionally been considered the ultimate individual choice. I have learned from the hate mail I've received from my uh, column that I wrote on the case that, that people's views are evolving on this, especially people in the medical field, that reasonable minds can disagree that, uh, that suicide may not be a, quote, uh, individual, end quote, choice. Um, on that note, does, does this verdict force us to perhaps uh, reexamine whether our laws are, are corresponding uh, with electronic forms of communication? Well, it's always been the case that the law struggles to catch up to technology. It would be impossible to enact or pass laws in advance of technology anticipating how to deal with them. We only learn by trial and error. We find out how to deal with things like social media and, and uh, technology as it advances. So we're constantly in a state of reevaluating our legal system in light of developments in technology. And at the rate they move now, uh, I mean, kids are barely using Facebook anymore. They're on to Instagram. They're on to, and next month it'll be on the next thing. And that'll be another medium and another way to communicate. So anytime you have that kind of uh, that geometric advance in, uh, in technology, the law is always going to move slowly, plodding behind it. And we're going to struggle to catch up. But I do think that this, is, this case causes us to take a look again, and it's sort of, for me at least, and people can disagree, it's an alarming development because, you know, once we make that choice to extend criminal liability to a third party for a suicide, uh, that is, and I hate slippery slope arguments, and I'm about to make one, so shame on me, <laughs> but, you know, you have to start thinking about how far will we extend this. If, if you and I get in an argument, and I, at the, before I hang up the phone, say, you know what, go kill yourself. And you happen to be, I happen to be aware that you're a little sensitive, uh, that you have maybe some, some issues, and then you, then you do it. At, at what degree, to what extent are we prepared to impose liability for not only just words, but words at a distance and for an act that is, we all agree, committed by an individual almost 90 to 100% of the time alone? Well, you know, to your to your point, I was I was speaking to someone ab about this case, and I said, well, obviously I'm not an attorney, so I I, I don't have the, the the legal standing to talk about it. But I said, and I, and the example I gave to them, I said, okay, it, we're on the phone, and, and you just say, I'm so tired today, I should just kill myself. And I go, great, can I have your Rolex? 
I mean, yeah. is, is that what we is that what we're headed? You know, I hate to be an alarmist, but once we've we've stepped over the threshold with these cases, and I understand the sentiment because over time we've expanded and evolved our view of mental illness. Anybody who's even taken a passing look at the history of mental illness w- would agree that we've, we've, we understand so much more about mental illness, and we no longer view it as even things like addiction. You know, in years past, it was, you know, come on, man, get your act together. We don't really say that anymore if somebody's an alcoholic or they have a, a mental illness. We look at it like a, an illness like any other. And the one effect of doing that is it takes away responsibility from the individual. Uh, because we look at mental illness as some sort of uh, outside factor. Once we start doing that legally, then we start looking at uh, other causes. And other causes of suicide become something that can happen from your environment, including the people in your life and what they say. So it's a natural progression of our sort of growing understanding of mental illness and and other uh, emotional issues. So it's not a surprise, but it does, it is a cause for concern. Because like I say, where do we draw, you know, the law is about line drawing. You know, I guess I like, I'm a slave to my, uh, to my practice in that I like the idea of, of line drawing. And it makes me wonder where, what, now that we've broken through one line, where will the next line be? To what extent are we prepared to hold third parties liable criminally and take away their liberty uh, for not just the words they say, but the, the, in, in causing suicide? Well, you, you mentioned um, uh, mental health in, in this, and um, when I was listening or reading the, the, some of the Texas changes, right, it, it seemed to me two very disturbed people engaged in, in, in discourse. And I, and I know it's, it's very hard, one's living, but are, are we at a point now where we can take all the uh, free will and personal responsibility and put it on another person and absolve the other person, in this case someone who took their life, are we at that point to where that's a legally sound uh, process? I don't think it is. People disagree with me, but that my view, and I understand I am a biased criminal defense attorney, so I am very mindful, uh, and I often view some of these laws as oppressive. That's sort of that I'm always going to be a little biased that way. So you know, take what I say with a grain of salt. But absolutely, I mean, I think that, that the, you know, when suicide happens, what you find is typically, uh, you know, parents and family, they often don't want to believe that the, that, uh, the person committed suicide. They want to look to outside factors to blame. I'm not a psychologist. It's, this is just my personal experience, my personal observation. But if that's the case, if that's, you know, if that's what people do, that need to sort of look for external factors is understandable, but it doesn't justify holding people criminally responsible to sort of to make, to make ourselves feel better that maybe a loved one took their life. It's just not it, – it may make some people feel better, but it's not justice. It really isn't. And, you know, I, I keep in mind, I'm aware that this is, you know, as with many cases that are sort of seminal cases in an area, this is a case where the defendant was an odious person. This is not a likable defendant. What she did was morally terrible. I mean, it just when I read these text messages, it's heartbreaking to think, my God, you know, when people are considering suicide, they, you hope that they talk to somebody. And then my next thought is, yeah, but you, you hope they don't talk to that person. Right. That's a terrible person to find. Of all the lousy luck, I mean, to, to start dating somebody who's a complete supporter of you committing suicide. And the parents must be thinking, or any of his friends and family must be thinking, my God, if he'd only talked to me, I would have, I would have directed him in another way. And I think any time that happens with any suicide, if anyone's had that happen in their, their own circle, that's the feeling. My God, if they'd only talked to me about it. And I think that's what makes this case so frustrating, is that you have just a, just a uh, morally culpable person in this defendant, but you know, not everything that is a moral wrong must be a legal wrong. There is a difference. Well, sticking with the, you just gave the hypothetical, I mean, so, so is the court saying, uh, um, for example, if it wasn't for Carter's behavior, Roy might still be alive? I mean, that seems to be a serious leap. Is that... Is that- Right, because what it does is it misunderstands legal causation. Causation is, is two distinct elements. Ca- you know, when, when we talk about what causes something, I mean, if I, 
if in the middle of the night I, I say, you know, gosh, I really, really want the sun to rise tomorrow morning, nobody would imagine that my words had anything to do with the sun rising. That's something I didn't cause anything. Legal causation is a really thorny issue. It's not as easy as it sounds, and law students struggle with it, including myself when I was in law school. And it's not enough to say that but for causation, uh, if not for what somebody did, this wouldn't have happened. The law imposes an additional requirement, approximate cause, and that means foreseeability. So in other words, it's not enough that, that, the, the, that my actions were the cause, in fact, of an un, uh, undesirable outcome, of a you know, tragic outcome. The criminal law imposes an additional requirement that it be foreseeable. Now, when you start applying that to suicide cases, you still might have legal causation because, but, but I think the causation argument fails, not in the foreseeability, because if I bug you and bug you to commit suicide over and over again and text you over and over again, there's no question that you committing suicide was foreseeable. But my argument would be that it was not the cause in fact. You can't say that, that my text messages to you actually logically caused your, I shouldn't say logically, but actually caused your death, because you yourself caused your death. The, the main factor in causing your death, the superseding cause, as we say in the law, was your individual actions, whatever those, those were that you used to take your life. But the, my text messages may have motivated you, it may have been foreseeable that you would commit suicide, but I would argue that, that text messages and, and my encouragement is not the cause, in fact, the legal cause, in fact, of someone's suicide. You know, I pose a similar question to Judge Gurdon. I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Be- because of what you just said, the whole causation, um, is, there, is there any First Amendment implications here, in your view? You know, I've been asked a lot about whether or not there are First Amendment implications, and I think those, the First Amendment is a, is a uh, secondary issue here, but it is an important issue because it, this case raises the question that, you know, what, what can we be liable for for what we say? But the First Amendment has many limitations. We've, uh, it's never been an absolute, and the government has always been able to punish certain kinds of speech. So the idea that we might add another class of unprotected speech, isn't that shocking? I mean, we do punish words that are, that are very likely to cause eminent physical harm. Uh, we, uh, we, we punish different kinds of words. We already punish those kinds of words, so it's not that, uh, that much of a stretch to criminalize certain words that, that have some effect on somebody. But I do think that, uh, that because... Number one, the causation is questionable. Number two, uh, the you know we don't want to extend responsibility in cases of suicide. I think you know the First Amendment uh, is is an additional safeguard. But you know, look, we we've we have exceptions to the First Amendment anyway, so it's not that much of a stretch to find that somebody's text messages or encouragement, uh, if they actually cause the harm, are are an exception to the First Amendment to free speech. You know, one of the things I was really um, struck. By was the judge acknowledged that Mr. Roy had, had already taken steps to cause his own death and that Ms. Carter's text messaging pressured him to kill himself had not on their own caused his death. But then how does that square with involuntary the manslaughter verdict? I don't think it does. I think if you don't have but-for causation, then you don't have, you don't have manslaughter. The way the judge could have, or a court could have concluded that there was cause in fact, was that, you know, a different way of looking at cause in fact, which is, well, if he didn't know how to say, and I'll just use an imaginary defendant, if he didn't know how to tie a noose, and he called a friend, and a friend told him how to tie a noose, then you could say that that friend was the cause in fact, and then you could say that it was foreseeable. So, it, with that kind of logic, you can make a case for causation. I just don't think that's the correct application of causation. But again, I concede that causation is one of the most complicated, uh, difficult concepts to wrap your mind around. And for that reason, I think a lot of reasonable minds can differ on, on issues of causation. The thing I'm generally, my, in my personal opinion, what I feel like I'm generally seeing in the criminal law is a, a tendency now, a trend, to expand the concept of causation and find people liable where maybe they wouldn't have been liable before. And holding people responsible for another person's suicide is a classic example of that. 
Is is that, uh, in your view, uh, the, the dilemma you just posed? Is that more of a legislative problem than a judicial problem? I mean, I mean, how do we square that? I mean, it, no, it's not because you know the, some of the one of the things I've always found interesting about criminal law is that the lower level crimes, the the misdemeanors, sometimes the low level felonies are some of the most broadly drafted crimes of all. So, for example, you know, murder is, is very, uh, usually very well defined. But sometimes reckless endangerment is simply as simple as rec- someone who recklessly endangered the life of, or not even the life, recklessly endangers some other person. And then juries are left to decide, well, what is reckless and what's endangerment? And it becomes a very subjective standard. So I don't know that, that the, you know, then again, you could argue that these broadly drafted laws, especially at the lower level of crimes, are necessary because it's not, it's impossible to anticipate uh, every kind of conduct that is criminal. So this gives prosecutors some, some wiggle room to find conduct that is culpable and crowbar it into a statute. It's frustrating as a criminal defense attorney to defend a case of reckless endangerment when you know there are no more than maybe six or seven words in the statute, and I, I still am not entirely sure what the heck reckless endangerment means. So it's always been problematic for defense attorneys, but I understand that that these broadly drafted criminal laws they serve a purpose, especially at some of the you know lower the high level misdemeanors, maybe low level felonies. And uh, they've always been around, and uh, you know, we I guess we sort of entrust juries to know these uh, these crimes when they see them, and they're given the the definition. Uh, beyond this verdict being um, great fodder for upcoming first year law students, where do we go from here? Well, I think this case, you know, th- this case was quietly a very important legal case. And, you know, some cases are sensational. This case was somewhat sensational, but it was also very important legally. And it, it stands as an example of our need to stay on top of our legislation uh, when it comes to technology. And it's always going to be problematic because, let's face it, I mean, courts, judges, uh, lawyers, they're – they're Luddites. They're not exactly technophiles. And it's often the case that, that a judge in a, a court or even jurors are confronted with you know, young people's technology that they may not fully understand. Uh, they may not fully understand the way in this case, you know, people communicate mostly by text message or on social media. And, and, uh, and I, think, you know, I, think this is, I think this is one of those cases where uh, technology is just, again, outpacing our legislation. And there's nothing we can ever do about that. It's always going to be a struggle. And it's, always going to get, it's only going to get more difficult as time goes on because technology is just going to keep advancing, and, and geometrically so. It's going to get faster and faster. And uh, we're just going to have to be very mindful. Danny Savalos, CNN legal analyst. Thank you, sir, for being on the public rally today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. That was Danny Savalos. Stay tuned as I speak with Nigel Austin about the upcoming National Black Theater Festival here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Welcome back. Next month, city of Winston-Salem will proudly host the 15th annual National Black Theater Festival. It is a biannual festival that adds a cultural esprit de corps to the city of Winston-Salem, as well as providing an economic jolt to the city. Joining me to talk about the National Black Theater Festival is Nigel Austin. Austin is the executive director of the North Carolina Black Repertory Company, which produces the National Black Theater Festival. Nigel Austin, welcome back to the public morality. Uh, thank you very much, Ron. It's great to be back. Yeah. It's good. It seemed like it was only yesterday. I, I remember um, the last time I interviewed you about the National Black Theater Festival, it was after the festival, and I said you already had on your website, counting off the days, we had 711 days. <laughs> That's right. You know, th- that time flew by. <laughs> it, it goes by very quickly. As a matter of fact, it goes by so quickly, folks think that we had it last year. <laughs> Well, I, I imagine with the work that you do, um, it probably seemed quicker to you than it has to me. 
<laughs> well, it does. You know, it's, it's so much uh, to be done. As you indicated, we talked right after the festival before, and we literally start uh, right after the festival evaluating what happened, uh, beginning to plan for the next one. So it's, uh, it's an all-the-time proposition. Uh, it escalates right at this time because there's so much to do and only about six weeks remaining. So, so for those who are unfamiliar, could you give us a uh, brief history of the theater festival, its origins, please? Well, the North Carolina Black Repertory Company uh, was founded in 1979 by Larry Leon Hamlin, also known as Mr. Markastic. So it's the oldest and first African-American theater company in the state of North Carolina. In 1989, uh, Larry was attending a conference, and he was thinking about uh, the history of black theater, um, how companies are trying to sustain themselves, what was something he could do, and he thought about a conference initially. And the more he thought about it, he decided um, about creating a festival. And so in 1989, he uh, talked to Maya Angelou, and um, she liked the idea. She talked to some of her friends, like Oprah Winfrey and some other actors that she knew. And uh, the first festival was born in August of 1989. We had about 10,000 people that came into the community, and it's been history ever since. This is the 15th biennial festival. Uh, we expect about 60,000 people in the community. Uh, we've uh, the economic impact and the community has been over 220 million since 1989. So it's a big deal. It's a lot of people. It's very festive. Has a rich history, and uh, we call it Black Holy Ground, Black Theater Holy Ground. It's an international celebration and reunion of spirit that, uh, uh, like a magnet, just really attracts people to come for good theater and good time. Well, well, let's talk about this. Uh this is the 16th, 17th annual, 16th annual? 15th. 15th annual. Let's talk about this one specifically and, and talk about, um, give us a sense of the, the, the acts. Um, where will they be dispersed throughout the city? Just give people the lay of the land of what the festival, once they get here, what, what should they expect? Well, what you expect is something for everyone, literally. Uh, so for the first time on Saturday, July 29th, we have a free comedy special. Sinbad will be performing here in the community. Uh, on Sunday, the 30th, we have the biennial uh, Celebrity Reception, which is hosted at uh, Winston-Salem State University. So all our celebrities are coming in and other invited guests. On Monday, uh, July 31st, is the opening night gala. And at the gala, it's uh, all the pomp and circumstance and red carpet and African drums and music. There's dinner. There's uh, honors and award ceremony where we're recognizing uh, various people. Lou Gossett Jr., for example, is one of the honorees this year along with others. And that will be followed by an opening night performance this year's Five Guys Named Mo. And then Tuesday, this begins the host of all of the performances. So we have more than 45 uh, companies that will be here. Uh, five of them are co collegiate um, companies. Uh, we have one from uh, 30 students coming from Nigeria. Uh, the University of Louisville, Norfolk State University, A&T State University, and the UNC School of the Arts. Uh, more than 120 performances, uh, 20 venues across the community. So UNC School of the Arts, uh, Downtown Convention Center, the Hotel, Winston-Salem State University, SECA, uh, Salem College. Literally throughout the community is where the performances will be going on that begins Early in the morning, it goes to late in the morning. Uh, <laughs> we have a number of uh, free activities. We have a Reader's Theater Workshop. Uh, we have a Youth Talent Showcase, uh, Teen Tastic, which is focused on teens. We have Late Night Poetry Jam. We have a, a National Black Theater Film Fest, which will be going on at the same time. We have some comedy. Micah Collier, who's a comedian, has a one-person performance that he's uh, going to be talking about his mama, as he says. So literally, uh, whether it's a one-person performance, uh, we have a person coming from the U.K. that's performing about the first black judge there. Uh, we have the Larry Leon Hamlin solo series, which are one-person performances. We have large casts. We have musicals. We have drama. So literally, Byron, it's if you like theater, um, you like to engage with people, high energy, fellowship, just a great time, this is the time to be here in Winston-Salem. And it's also safe to say that every nook and cranny where one can hold live theater performance, they, you have that space secured. Is that correct? That is pretty much correct. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it, it literally takes up uh, 
the community, so there are a lot of moving parts. We have thousands of volunteers. Um, if you're staying, regardless of the hotel, um, in the community uh, where you're booked, and we have more than 3,500 room nights already booked, uh, once the Salem Mass Transit works with us, so we will be picking up people at hotels, uh, taking them to the venue, uh, to the performance that they're going to see, picking them back up and bringing them back. So we make it easy for people to to get around, to get to the performances, um, uh, to get out and eat, go shopping at the Vendors Mart and other places. So it's uh, just, a, a, as we say, a Marftastic, and that means nothing better or greater than mm-hmm. uh, it's a Marftastic time. Um. Talk to me. Give me a little uh, behind the scenes. How how are how are these groups selected? What's the process for that? Well, the process it starts usually in the uh, late fall of the year, somewhere around um, late October, November. Uh, we have submission process. So, and I think the submissions uh, ended somewhere in the end of January, end of February. So, if you're interested in the main stage performance, or if you're interested in having the film and the Film Fest part of it, which is a small part, or other aspects. There are certain deadlines. We also have an international colloquium. So that deadlines, and what you would need to do is, is submit the information based on the criteria, you know, a, a snippet of your film, synopsis, other information. Then we have a committee of people who literally look at all that information, they visit um, and actually see a number of the productions, if not all of them. And from that, we try to come up with a mix of uh, diversity, uh, small versus large, one person versus a big cast, uh, different categories and things we think that uh, people would really enjoy. So it's, there's really a lot of labor um, that goes into uh, reviewing information, seeing plays, and then trying to put together what we think is a, a, a great, uh, diverse group of performances uh, over the period of a week. Now, when, when you're going through the selective process, do you have an overall theme, or is it just the, the feel that what would work here in Winston-Sim? How, how do you... It's really more of the feel. It's more of the latter. The, there isn't a theme. It's, it's just good theater. And again, having a good mix. Um, uh, again, we have some double-bill shows. Uh, usually they're smaller shows, and so we'll put two together. We have some one-person shows, so... And most of those are somewhat historical. Uh, you know, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, there's a perform- one-man performance uh, by a person who has a remarkable likeness to Sammy Davis Jr., plays multiple instruments, uh, which currently is selling more than, than any other show at this particular point. It's a one-person show. So sometimes it's the historical part of it. It's the connection with a particular person and their legacy in terms of theater. Uh, others really like musicals, so there's a company out of Chicago, uh, Jackie Taylor. Uh, whatever she brings is always good. It's at Winston-Salem State University in the auditorium. Um, and it's fantastic, outstanding singers, great message, and it's very informative. We have another group from Florida that comes, and this year they're focusing on gospel music. Um, whatever they bring is always good. So it's less of a theme and just more of a feel, what's good theater, how do we kind of have that diversity. Uh, so based on your interest, there really is something for everyone. Now, uh, staying with the theme of feel, um, talk to me, if you will, uh, uh, about the role the National Black Theater Festival plays in the overall spirit of the Winston-Salem community, if you would. Well, it's one of those things, Byron, going back to Larry founding the North Carolina Black Repertory Company. It was He moved back here from Rhode Island. He borrowed $1,000 from his father to start the company. And the way he uh, literally generated support early on is he started what he called living room theater. And simply what that was is that um, you invited us to your house, and Larry would come over and bring four or five actors, and they would perform excerpts from black classics. And that's how the support developed, doing that enough to then get people to join the guild and to volunteer and contribute money. Uh, No one believed uh, that this big idea of his called a festival would happen. Uh, He thought about it. He asked for support. He gained it. And what it means to the city is um, it's significant in terms of economic impact. Uh, Visit Winston-Salem in 2015 estimated the impact at $7.5 million. Uh, We believe it's a little bit more when you factor in ticket sales. It's been more than $220 million since 1989. So if you just look at those numbers, uh, you look at the number of room nights of people staying. Uh, 
today we have about 3,500 room nights already booked. Many of those were already booked before we made the announcement of who was coming and the performances, which we just did on June 5th. So I remember last time we talked, I mean, there are a number of people who, I mean, they go back almost as far as um, the festival started, and, and they come from places outside of Winston-Salem. They've been following this for decades now, is that? Correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, they, you know, it, it really is a magnet. Um, just to give you one funny example, so this year for the first time, um, the, the fairgrounds approached us about uh, partnering with them to bring Sinbad. And uh, so Sinbad agreed to come. We're having a pre-comedy uh, special on that Saturday night. We normally don't have anything there. We usually start off with the celebrity reception. So a person who's coming from out of town uh, found out about it, and they were upset because, in their words, when they sent the note, and, and they told us it was a shame that we would do this <laughs> without them knowing it. The shame was they just found out about it, and they had have been planning for the trip since the last time they came, made their reservations, and now they just learned about this, and they're upset because they can't get here for it. <laughs> so people really look forward to it. Um, two years ago, I met uh, two women that were childhood friends from Washington, D.C., here in the office, and we were talking, and I gave them a telephone number, said, if you need something, to get in touch with me. A couple of days ago, I received a text saying, I don't know if you remember me, met you in the office, we had a great time, I'm bringing another friend who hasn't been before, we look forward to coming back. So it's those types of things that um, people hear about it, it's word of mouth. Uh, once you come, you enjoy it, you tell others, you bring others back, and so they know it's every other year. And usually around November, December of the year prior to the festival, uh, the inquiry starts. People start making hotel reservations, and then they're just waiting to see who's coming. They know it's going to be an enjoyable time because it always has been. It's going to be great theater, so they they they, uh, they go ahead and sign up and make the reservation and start buying tickets. And ticket sales are going very well as well. Talking with Nigel Austin uh, about the National Black Theater Festival that will be um, – here in July, July 31st? July 31st through August 5th. July 31st through August 5th, and um, it, throughout the entire city of Winston-Salem. Is that fair? That is correct. <laughs> All right. You know, Nigel, um, we've talked about this before, but I'd like to have you uh, approach it again. You know, in the culture that we live in, um, I, I know it's possible for people to hear National Black Theater Festival and assume that's an exclusive event. Uh, to black people only, but that's clearly, in my, my experience, that's clearly not the case. Could you say more about that? Well, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, there are those that you hear the word black, and black gets in the way of good theater. Uh, what we say in our motto is black theater is for everyone. It's about a culture, it's a message, it's history, it's about connecting people, and it literally touches everyone. And we have a pretty decent, diverse uh, audience coming that's predominantly African-American, but there is a segment of majority population who attend. Uh, I think I shared with you recently about a gentleman who, um, in, in the context of what you're asking about the diversity of it, he's an older gentleman, he's white, he's probably in his mid-80s, who has been uh, attending the festival since 1997, and he started with the International Colloquium. Uh, a few days ago, he gave our executive producer, uh, Sylvia Sprinkle-Hamlin, a one-and-a-half-page note that was attached to a seven-page typed single-space letter. And he wrote that letter in 2016, and he says that now what he does is he just records special memories. I used to keep a journal, and this particular memory was about the festival, about its history, about how much he's learned. Uh, that he's learned more coming to a festival than he learned in a semester when he was in school. And a funny part of that, and I think you've had the opportunity to read, is that he uh, he would park at least two miles from uh, downtown, whether the center of or the heartbeat of the festival. He would walk from the park to the hotel. He sat down and he met a woman, an African-American woman, and he would start talking about the festival and about his coming here. And how he loves it, how much he's learned, and about 30 minutes in, he realized, as he said, he had to rein in his enthusiasm, and that person happened to be the mother of the founder, Larry Leon Hamlin, and much to his surprise, he was just shocked, he's going on and on about this great thing, 
but in his letter, what he talks about is how much his family knows that he loves it, how much history that he gains from it, uh, how much he learns as a result of participating in it. And what I say to everyone, uh, Byron, regardless of your background or ethnicity, is that black theater is for everyone. There is a message for everyone. There's something about the human condition that you can connect with, and we encourage folks to come. We have a performance this year. Uh, um, it's called Ann and Emmett. And so it's a fictional meeting between uh, Ann Frank and Emmett Till. Uh, it's written by the wife of uh, the former defense secretary for Bill Clinton, who's going to be here. Uh, oh, Cohen. Yes, Cohen. Yeah. Oh, she wrote it. She wrote it. Yeah. And so she will be here. She's written a book as well as a, a part of that. Ted Lange, uh, who was uh, popular on the love boat. Uh, anything he brings is always great, and he has uh, Othello coming, and is a mixed cast, and it's outstanding. So what I would say in terms of what people think when they hear the word black and thinking it's exclusive is, is that it is inclusive. Uh, it's theater for everyone. There literally is something for everyone. And I guarantee that if you attend a performance, you will come back to something else. You know, I, I've got to ask you this. Um, when I think about um, the magnitude of this festival, and uh, I had the privilege um, two years ago, that would be my first National Black Theater Festival. And when I think about what it means culturally and economically, and, you, know, you know, I think of such cities, I think about Washington, D.C., I think about Atlanta or even Charlotte. And there are other cities, uh, including those I mentioned, but none of them have been able to replicate the scope of the National Black Theater Festival here in Winston-Salem. Any thoughts why? And I want you to knock the other cities, but why does it work here in Winston in ways it doesn't work, you know, in other other communities? Well, one, and and there have been cities who have tried to do what we do. Um, I think, one, they don't realize how much goes into it. It's unique. Um, It's the right size community and city for it. Uh, It can get lost in some other cities. There's nothing wrong with those cities. So New York or Atlanta or L.A. are so large and so much is already going on, it can be lost or swallowed up in that. So I think the size of the community, uh, how the community has embraced it, it literally is a -a one-of-a-kind festival in the world. Uh, People are used to coming here now, and it just wouldn't be the same anyplace else. So the combination of having its roots here, and uh, as again, as we call it, Black Theater, Holy Ground, and and the right size and uh, the partnerships and cooperation that we have here, I believe is part of the magic in terms of why it works best here versus anywhere else. And, and let me just brag, if I could, for a moment on our on our uh, beloved city of Winston Salem. It is a community that has not just the Black Theater Festival, but really has a commitment to the arts. And so would you say part of that, too, is you have a community that's predisposed to the arts in general? Absolutely. You know, we, we uh, the Arts Council of uh, Winston-Salem Society County is the oldest arts council in the country. It was founded in 1949, so there's a very long history of it. Uh, as you know, it, this is a very philanthropic community with a number of community foundations and a number of uh, arts organizations throughout the community as well. So I think those things do contribute to uh, the success of it and people embracing it and and why it's made it such a uh, unique uh, event and community. You you know, you've already crossed that threshold where this is no longer the best-kept secret in town. It's 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 vastly becoming no longer the best-kept secret in the country. But for those who are unfamiliar and they, they and they're hearing this broadcast and they want to get more information, what do they need to do? So they can do a number of things. One, they can call the office at any time, and that number is three three six seven two three two two six six. Anything festival related, uh, you can find online at www.nbtf. That's National Black Theater Festival. Nbtf. Org. Everything is there, so you can look at all the performances, synopsis, ticket prices, venues. There are some short videos of uh, a number of the performances. Uh, you can also download the brochure, which lists all of the information and tells you what, when, where, etc. So go to the website, nbtf.org, or giving us a call uh, of the two quickest ways uh, to find out more about what's going on. Nigel Austin, my friend who 
I imagine I will catch up with you about a month after the festival because I know you'll be hibernating after that, getting ready for the next festival. Uh, thank you again, sir, for being on the Pogo Rally Day. We've enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I'll be looking forward to being on the rooftop hanging out with you once this is over. You, you got a cigar with your name on it, my friend. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Byron. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us here at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.